October 13, 2016, Benjamin Dominic, publisher of The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour, delivered a lecture entitled The Rise of American Populism. The address was delivered as part of the Acton Lecture Series 2016 in the Mark Murray Auditorium of the Acton Building in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is Benjamin Dominic. I want to talk to you a little bit today about uh, some thoughts in the context of the rise of, of populism in America. But I want to start uh, by talking about where this comes from as part of the American spirit. The motto that we have at The Federalist is, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. It comes from a speech by then Governor Calvin Coolidge on the anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. He describes the boys of Bunker Hill as lovers of freedom anxious for the fray, sons of Puritans, whom Macaulay tells us humbly bowed in the dust before the Lord, but hesitated not to set their foot upon the neck of their king. There is a rebellious spine of stubborn contrariness that runs up and down the American body politic. It has since our inception. It is the motivation that gives rise to a resistance that rejects our king and the views of our elites today. This populism is a healthy motivation. It can be turned in directions that are unhealthy, but properly directed. It represents the stubborn spirit that has time and again been of great help to our nation. It can teach us to be stoic and tough and has steeled the American people against threats that seemed insurmountable. Coolidge spoke of a revolutionary generation that rejected the assumptions of the elites of their time in favor of an idea of freedom. One such member of this generation was a descendant of the Scots-Irish Highlanders, a frontiersman of a people free as only the frontier could offer, who loved freedom and a good fight. Born in a life of hardship, the son of Irish immigrants whose father died before his birth, this young son of the Appalachians grew up to see one brother die at the hands of the British, another starved to death as a prisoner of war, a mother who died months later. When a British officer demanded this young man shine his boots, he refused, and the officer slashed him with a saber, scarring him for life. He was 14. He did not forget, and he did not forgive. He relied on his wits. He learned the law. He became Tennessee's first congressman, one of its first senators, a justice of the Supreme Court of the state, and a commander of the state militia. And when, on a January day in 1815, he had the opportunity to exact his revenge on the British for the deaths of his brothers and his mother, Andrew Jackson crushed the British army at the Battle of New Orleans. If we are to understand the particular American brand of populism, it's impossible to do so without understanding Andrew Jackson. When he ascended to national prominence as a general of volunteers, America was insecure and under threat from every side. The people were desperate for a strong man to set things right and represent their interests. When he arrived in Washington, the, the populist festivities had the elites of the city clutching their pearls. And when he left the stage, our foes had been utterly defeated. Andrew Jackson has fallen into ill repute of late. The party that once hosted Jefferson Jackson dinners has found both of these men too problematic. They are replacing him on the $20 bill. Uh, my own view is that uh, if the historical figure uh, set to replace him could have plausibly defeated Andrew Jackson in single combat, that would be okay. But since no one qualifies, I think it might be an error. Jackson was the, uh, the original political beneficiary of a populist movement in American politics. The corrupt bargain of 1824 was the original sin of cronyism and graft, writ large for the American electorate. 
his rejection of the pieties and assumptions of the elites, and his advocacy for the respect and honor of the common man was essential to his elevation. He rode a populist surge into the White House and the halls of history. We are living in a populist moment today. It is a moment born out of a surge of disgust and distrust with the institutions of American life. It is a moment that represents the breakdown of the post-Cold War left-right politics of the nation, fueled by a dramatic decline of trust in America's elites and the institutions they run. The percentage of Americans with a great deal of trust in the presidency, the courts, public schools, and banks for unions, the justice system, big business, Congress, and the media are all at historic lows. In some cases, they are a rounding error away from zero. This decline of trust for American institutions didn't happen overnight. It began with Watergate and Vietnam, continued through the financial crisis, the Iraq War. Real failures undermine confidence in the capacity of elite institutions to do good and in their ability to represent the interests of the people. We are witnessing a populist rebellion where Americans are reasserting themselves against a bipartisan political and cultural establishment utterly discredited due to their record of failure. This distrust was earned by the elites who looked out for the interests of people other than those they were elected to serve. Rather than responding to the populist tendencies of the electorate with real changes, the elites overpromised and underdelivered. They thought they could get by holding a musket over their head in election years and prioritizing what lobbyists wanted all the others. They were comfortable in a bubble of economic success, a world away from the areas that saw no recovery. Elite indifference to populist opinion and the economic pain many Americans continue to experience created a vacuum that Donald Trump was happy to fill. The key to understanding this phenomenon is to recognize that Donald Trump is neither a disease nor a symptom. He is instead, for many Americans, the beta test of a cure. This year reveals the problem that occurs when a disaffected group of voters is lured by the message of a strong man who will work for their interests because they have been ignored by the elites of both parties for too long. It is no accident that Donald Trump broke with elite bipartisan consensus on the issues of immigration, trade, and foreign policy. In each of these arenas, elite consensus views were favored by the donor class, by big business, and by party leadership to the exclusion of others leaving a group of disaffected Americans who see their country slipping away for them, desperate for someone who would make a change. There are limits to the success of populism in America historically. They still exist today. William Jennings Bryan, Ross Perot, Pat Buchanan, they all experienced this. Some thought that Trump would be like Buchanan, who, if you will recall, nearly won Iowa, won four out of the first six contests in 1996 before succumbing to Bob Dole. But he may have more in common with the populist surge we saw at the end of the 19th century, when the Bourbon Democrats, who backed the gold standard in free trade and would be writing for the Wall Street Journal editorial page if they were around today, saw William Jennings Bryan come along and take over their party with a speech. The former is a politically important but limited incident, which warned of weaknesses in the party coalition but didn't prevent retaking the presidency on the part of the Republican Party four years later. The latter was a sweeping realignment of the politics of the country, which held down the Democratic Party for three presidential elections and ultimately led to its takeover by the progressives. The question I hear most often in Washington goes something like this. What would possess an electorate that four years ago nominated Mitt Romney to nominate a man who is so unlike him? The answer, in part, is that the people who nominated Romney aren't entirely the same people who nominated Trump. A new class of voter and participant decided to engage in the primary system in 2016, people who do not typically vote in primary elections. The question is why. 
Why did these people engage and vote when they rarely have in the past? And the answer is, they're in the game now because the most precious prerogative available to any American is no longer extant, the prerogative to ignore your government. Donald Trump has the appeal of a traitor to his class, dispensing entirely with the politeness of politically correct elites and telling it like it is. If the president is to be an autocrat, let him be our kind of autocrat, his supporters say. The other side had their turn. It's our turn now. The mediating institutions run by American elites failed to prevent this. Consider the failure of one aspect of these elites, the media, in their coverage of Mitt Romney. The media referred to Romney as a bully, anti-immigrant, racist, stupid, unfit to be president. In 2012 alone, Paul Krugman called Mitt Romney a charlatan, pathologically dishonest, untrustworthy. He said Romney didn't even uh, pretend to care about poor people, completely amoral, a dangerous fool, ignorant as well as uncaring. Is anyone surprised that no one listens when the same labels are used on Donald Trump? Andrew Jackson's foes warned that he would throw the Constitution and the rule of law to the winds in pursuit of an aggressive promise of unilateral change. His supporters were fine with that. Like the Roman people's call for the dissolution of the Senate, they, need, they demanded a strong horse, an outsider who will fix all things, the powerful man who promises he will at long last get things done for the people. I had the luxury of spending a good deal of time in green rooms over the past year, and in those rooms, I would often ask a question of the media elites gathered there. Do you have any close family or friends who are voting for Donald Trump? The answer was almost universally no. They knew no one. They had no idea why anyone would want to vote for Trump. The explanation is simple. The people became so disgusted with the failure of the, of the elites that in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand because he offered them something different from the failures they knew all too well. In Washington, everyone uses Donald Trump to vindicate their prior assumptions. After the coming election, you will hear various corners blame conservative talk radio, alt-right extremism, Fox News, the political establishment, the donor class, the debates, reality tele television, and the rise of Kim Kardashian, among other causes. Some even sink to the level of blaming desperate Americans who voted for Mr. Trump for everything that's gone wrong, adopting Bertolt Brecht's suggestion that it would be easier to dissolve the people and elect another. A number of more intelligent commentators on the right and the left have delved into the question of America's lost greatness and discovered what would lead voters to find Donald Trump's populist message so appealing. It is the same phenomenon identified on the left by Chris Hayes in his book, The Twilight of the Elites, on the right by Charles Murray in Coming Apart, a dramatic failure of the institutions run by America's elites and nostalgia for a time when such institutions could be trusted. Yuval Levin's book out this year, The Fractured Republic, may be the best explanation of why this populist message has modern appeal, even in an era of technological advancement once impossible to imagine. The Fractured Republic was composed prior to the success of Trumpism, in some ways making an even more insightful piece of commentary on why this political earthquake occurred. Levin describes with compassion and empathy the failings of a nation that has combined the twin dangers of extreme individualism and centralized governance, while ignoring the frustrations of the American working class. Levin tells where we have been as a nation, where we are, and why so many people are eager to shrug off the benefits of globalization to get back to where we were. In his telling, American politics and culture is gripped by a crippling inability to adapt to the demands of the modern age because of a false perception of the nature of the country, driven in large part by the lasting power of baby boomer nostalgia. 
The siren song of this longing calls us back to a time when jobs were stable, unions were strong, shared traditions provided a sense of underlying foundation, and our polity and culture was dominated by a handful of large, trusted institutions. It is the lure of a past rendered in a rosy glow. But this is a very skewed lens. The reality is that the period of 1950 to 1970 was very much at odds with the rest of the American experience. Large institutions of government were trusted to a much greater degree than they had been in the past. And the military eradication of many of America's economic competitors around the world allowed for the rise of corporate behemoths never seen before in American life. It is no accident that when Donald Trump is asked to identify the last time America was great, he cites the 1950s and 1960s, a period when a unified vision of the American dream held sway. In Levin's framing, we are driven by nostalgia for a time when the world made sense a time when America's common culture was overwhelmingly driven by underlying white identity politics. The vast majority of the country was Christian, at least in name, and employment was more stable and predictable than it is today in an economy exposed to global competition. But this wistfulness is blinding us to the truth about our current economic and social challenges. And it is not just the boomers who are animated by this counterproductive nostalgia. Many other institutions, including major media entities, social movements, and the Congress itself, is captured by this longing for the before time. Whether rooted in a desire for a system of governance that still runs on earmarks and smoke-filled rooms, or a desire for a shared culture where everyone says Merry Christmas, Levin identifies a crippling nostalgia that is hardly monopartisan. His opening chapter cites Krugman's The Conscience of a Liberal, which opens with a characteristic example of the, of the sort of homesickness or longing for a time that got it right. The Economist refers to his childhood in the 1950s as a paradise lost. It is the cultural dominance of this baby boomer vision, not as a period that breaks with the rest of the nation's history, but as an apotheosis of our greatness that has skewed politics to the point that many citizens are longing for a time when schools were segregated, taxes were high, and you had to save for a year to buy a refrigerator. Americans have suffered a disconnect from the traditional core institutions that make life in America better. Family, faith, work, and neighborhood. At the same time, the failure of our policies to mitigate or moderate the dramatic changes in our economy and culture have left, um, left some Americans feeling abandoned by their government. They aren't wrong. Our entire system of welfare, health care, and entitlements is built for a bygone era, one that was the exception to the American economic experience. Whether founded in the community or stood up by the government, our mediating institutions have failed to meet the needs of the people. Today, the American people view many of these institutions as irresponsible or corrupted, stagnant dinosaurs, incapable of responding to the speed of an advancing and evolving society. Coupled with a decline in shared values and cultural experiences, Moving from an era when two-thirds of the television sets in the country were tuned to I Love Lucy to one where highly developed subcultures thrive without any overlap, we see the disintegration of our common vision. We no longer share an understanding of what it means to be an American, instead viewing the pursuit of happiness as a purely individual act of self-actualization. One can measure this collapse in the decade and a half during which the American people have witnessed the 9-11 attacks, a failed war in Iraq, a bungled response to Katrina, a financial catastrophe, a Wall Street bailout, scandals in the Catholic Church, failed stimulus, an embarrassing launch of Obamacare, a series of incomprehensible Supreme Court decisions, and the rise of the Islamic State. All things that serve to raise distrust for our elites and the institutions they run as having even a basic capability to lead us through a time of turmoil. 
Given the decline of trust in centralized institutions, one would expect that Americans would, fa would not favor uh, investing more power in these entities. But that perspective represents a failure to understand what Alexis de Tocqueville and Robert Nisbet understood, that the rise of hyper-individualism and excessive centralization of government go hand in hand. As individuals become detached from the sources, sources of social order and meaning for their lives, they also become more desperate for strong leadership to make up for those perceived failures. Back to Levin, who writes, as a centralizing government draws power out of the mediating institutions of society, it leaves individuals more isolated. And as individualism further erodes the bonds that hold civil society together, people conclude only a central authority can pick up the slack. There's another nation where in the absence of such mediating institutions, we can see what happens. In Mexican society, as described in Jorge Castaneda's 2011 book, Manana Forever, in the, he writes, in the United States, there are approximately 2 million civil society organizations, one for every 150 inhabitants. In Chile, there are 35,000, or one for every 428 Chileans. But in Mexico, there are only 8,500, or one for every 12,000 Mexicans. 85% of all Americans belong to five or more organizations. In Mexico, 85% belong to no organization. In the U.S., one out of every 10 jobs is located in civil society. In Mexico, the equivalent figure is one out of every 210. In a multitude of polls taken in Mexico, a, a consistent 80% or more of those surveyed stated they had never worked formally or informally with others to address their community's problems. The end result is a nation where the hyper-individualized mob appeals to the strong centralized government for help time and again. The expressive individualism that Levin identifies as being the ethic of our age lacks the understanding of self and what individuals require beyond mere self-liberation or the generous funding of personal priorities. This is a dangerous trend that must be channeled back toward a more beneficent understanding of what freedom requires of us. This point about individualism brings us to an important question. How do we define a life well lived? People want to be happy, and every American has the right to pursue happiness. But what, ha what happens if what makes us happy and the methods we use to pursue it undergo a dramatic change in ways that fundamentally alter the nature of the nation's longstanding political coalitions? Several recent books have addressed the phenomenon of large-scale demographic change from a variety of perspectives. Jonathan Last's What to Expect When No One's Expecting, Hannah Rosen's The End of Men, Kay Heimowitz's Manning Up, Helen Smith's Men on Strike, Nick Schultz's Home Economics, and others have tracked the rise of this new American dream in the form of shifting demographic trends. They tell a story about the rise of single America, the delay of family formation, and the shifting definition of the life well lived. Together, these trend lines reveal the rise of a more individualist approach to living that prioritize, prioritizes career and personal interests over marriage, childbirth, and religion. This shift towards singlehood and away from family formation is notable for several reasons. It is unique in the American historical experience. Women and men are marrying later than at any time in our history, and with that comes the attendant drop in childbirth, with trends that cannot be explained away by the recent economic downturn alone. This trend is primarily confined to the lower and middle earners, discouraging financial stability, causing stagnation in household budgets. But what may be most remarkable about this trend is how little those in the political sphere understand its potentially lasting significance. For much of the 20th century, the definition of the American dream was commonly held. It was a house, a patch of green, a white picket fence, a husband and wife, two dogs, two kids, a nice car, a nice neighborhood with a good school and safe streets. Achieving that dream 
involved myriad paths, but the typical ones tended to make people gravitate toward a view which made them inclined to be more conservative as they approached middle age. Buying a house makes you care about property taxes. Balancing a family budget makes you care about income taxes and gas and grocery prices. Owning a small business made you care about burdensome regulations. Having children made you care about what programming was on television, what dangers existed in the world, and typically sent you back to church. You started to care about the school board and whether the teacher was actually teaching your children. Perhaps you have the first negative thoughts of your life about a union. And then you started to worry about debt and deficits, the rising costs of the state, mindful that you spend more and more time working not for yourself and your family, but for government and its dependents. These experiences lend themselves to a central, commonly held view of consistent cross-generational priorities and civic values. But today, we see the traditional pathway toward the American dream dissolving. Families are forming later, if at all, and breaking up with astonishing regularity for lower-income Americans. There's an increasing disengagement from civil society, diminishing church attendance. The financial crisis of 2008 was driven in large part by something always essential to the American dream, the idea of owning your own home. Today, the home ownership rate in America is the lowest it's been since 1965. What's going on here is bigger than government, but the state has undoubtedly fomented it. It's bigger than economics, though, uh, though perverse economic incentives have obviously contributed, and it's bigger than culture, though the culture has certainly been an accelerating agent. What we are witnessing is the death of the shared vision of the American dream, something we are only noticing in its absence. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan understood, the common belief in the importance of strong families and neighborhoods as essential to the American dream was the greatest hedge against expansive government. Without the underlying philosophical consensus, which has been at the heart of the American experience since its, since its inception, there is no long-term basis for a common understanding of how we define rights and responsibilities. And without that consensus, things fall apart. One of the things that falls apart is political coalitions. For roughly half a century, the American right has succeeded by following Frank Meyer's fusionist path. Meyer, an intellectual ex-communist turned libertarian, argued for an alliance of libertarians, conservatives, and anti-communists toward common aims in his influential 1962 book, In Defense of Freedom. He aimed to bridge the gap between the individualists and the communitarians, writing in 1964 that truth withers when freedom dies, however righteous the authority that kills it, and free individualism, uninformed by moral value, rots at its core and soon brings about conditions that pave the way for surrender to tyranny. In undertaking this project, Meyer followed a path consistent with the constitutional compromises of the founders. It was the fusion of James Madison that prevailed at the Constitutional Convention, not the arguments of Hamilton on one side or Jefferson on the other. But Meyer's approach is beginning to fail. It led a coalition which supported the rise of conservatives based on the concept of a three-legged stool of fiscal conservatism, traditional values, and strong national defense. The seat atop the legs of the stool was communism during the Cold War, and then for a brief time, really just the election of 2004, it was Islamic terrorism. In the wake of the Cold War and the post-Iraq foreign policy shifts on the right, the Meyer-era coalition has crumbled. Meyer's approach needs to be updated for a post-Cold War reality, and it is incumbent upon a new generation of leaders to do so. Our current elites have failed to connect with the American people, to meet the test of competency, and to live up to their promises of limited government, free markets, and free people. And that brings us to the starting point of where any new coalition must begin, with respect. The reason for today's populist revolt is a lack of respect. There is nothing more important than respect. It represents the implicit and sincere acceptance of democratic civil equality. 
The populist supporters of Donald Trump know the elites do not respect them or their plight. Over and over, they have been told by the elites, you are not allowed to want that thing. And they are fed up with it. To the establishment of our country, this breakdown looks like chaos. It looks like savagery. But to many people, it looks like democracy. As Angelo Cotavilla has noted, America is now ruled by a uniformly educated class of persons that occupies the commanding heights of bureaucracy, of the judiciary, education, the media, of large corporations, and that wields political power. Its control of access to prestige, power, privilege, and wealth exerts a gravitational pull that has made the Republican Party's elites into its satellites. This class's fatal feature is its belief that ordinary Americans are a lesser intellectual and social breed. Its increasing self-absorption, its growing contempt for whoever won't bow to it, its dependence for votes on sectors of society whose grievances it stokes have led it to break the most basic rule of Republican life, deeming its opposition illegitimate. Our American politics is broken because of a bipartisan alliance formed over decades between large institutions, an alliance which socializes risk, prevents competition, and rigs the playing field in ways that hurt family pocketbooks, crush innovation, and encroach on individual liberties. Today, big government and its partner bigs, banks, business, labor, ag, and their armies of lobbyists represent a common enemy to both communities and to individuals. Organic communitarianism depends on individual agency and autonomy in the market and in civil society. The breakdown of the ability of our neighborhoods to self-govern is collateral damage brought about by the left's war on individual liberty and the rise of an illiberal technocratic left, those who seek to absorb, marginalize, or extinguish institutions of civil society which compete with them and the state. Facing such a systemic problem, today's populists are rejecting technocratic incrementalist approaches, merely tweaking the system as insufficient, and instead pursue more dramatic ends. They aim to tear down the elites and their institutions root and branch, and end the systems which have enabled their power grab. Where the Tea Party of 2010 aimed at returning power and prosperity from the bigs to American individuals and families through free markets, civil society, and limited constitutional government, today's populist surge scraps this small government ideology and instead demands a strong leader, a Jacksonian leader, who respects the people and disrespects the elites to put things right. Donald Trump assures voters that he will use authoritarian power for good to help those who feel with good reason ignored by both parties. But the American experiment in self-government was the work of a generation that risked all to defeat a tyrannical monarch and establish a government of laws, not men. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people is precisely what the Constitution offers and what is most threatened by great men impatient to impose their will on the nation. At its worst, this can turn into nothing more than hollow European-style identity politics. But conservatives have far more to learn from these developments than many might like to admit. The Trump voter is moderate, disaffected, with patriotic instincts. He feels disconnected from party and from broken public institutions, left behind by a national elite that no longer believes he matters. Imagine you were one of the millions of middle-aged, unemployed white Americans with a high school degree. There are today 7 million men in prime working age who have dropped out of the labor force. That's 15% higher than we've seen since the end of the Great Depression. There are millions more who know people experiencing that pain as a brother, an uncle, or a son. Moved from unemployment to disability, you receive sufficient benefits to subsist, around $1,200 a month on average, and to pay for the alcohol and the drugs that help you self-medicate. Your life is essentially one marked 
by hopelessness, desperation, and anxiety. Alone among all demographics, your likelihood of suicide is rising. The things that make life not only endurable but happy are religious faith, now lost to you, family, which is fractured, community, which is disintegrated, and work, which you find impossible to come by. The TV screen flickers with images of people living lives you could never hope to emulate. Your situation is bleak, and while our soma is better, it is still not replacement for the pursuit of happiness. And when a golden-haired man comes on TV, a man who represents a version of what you might hope your life could be like, a man who defies the elites, who is rich and successful, who comes from the world of the elites but is strong enough to reject them and their lies, and he tells you it's not your fault your life is the way it is. He tells you it's the fault of immigrants or bad trade deals or wasteful, pointless wars. He tells you the problem with the elites is not that they are too conservative or too liberal, but that they are stupid and that they don't care about you. He tells you with confidence that only he can make things great again. And you listen. This is why I believe Trump's rise actually reveals something good. President Obama's core domestic policy agenda was designed to pull working and middle class voters left. It assumed that once they received the government's redistributive largesse, they would be interested in maintaining it and maintaining the left in power. Trump's rise bespeaks the utter failure of this program for the American working class. They have seen the left's agenda up close and do not believe it's good enough to make the nation great. These disaffected Americans can be won by those who respect the pro-American Jacksonian spine that runs through it. The challenge now is for conservatives and free marketers to give these voters the respect they deserve. Remember Mark Twain, for in a republic, who is the country? It is, is it the government which is for the moment in the saddle? Why the government is merely a servant, a temporary servant. It cannot be its prerogative to determine what is right and what is wrong, decide who is a patriot and who isn't. Its function is to obey orders, not originate them. The danger is that it's possible the American people are heading down a road that could leave them pinging back and forth between servitude and license. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, there are some nations in Europe whose inhabitants think of themselves in a sense as colonists, indifferent to the fate of the place they live in. The greatest changes occur in their country without their cooperation. They are not even aware of precisely what has taken place. They suspect it. They have heard of the event by chance. More than that, they are unconcerned with the fortunes of their village, the safety of their streets, the fate of their church and its vestry. They think that such things have nothing to do with them, that they belong to a powerful stranger called government. They enjoy these goods as tenants without a sense of ownership and never give a thought to how they might be improved. They are so divorced from their own interests that even when their own security and that of their children is finally compromised, they do not seek to avert the dangers themselves but cross their arms and wait for the nation as a whole to come to their aid. When a nation has reached this point, it must either change its laws and mores or perish, for the well of public virtue has run dry, and in such a place one no longer finds citizens but subjects. In the concluding chapter of his book, Yuval Levin makes the case for the citizen. He argues that we have underappreciated the importance of Americans to the American project, that our highly individualist, liberationist idea of liberty is possible only because we presuppose the existence of a human being and citizen capable of handling a remarkably high degree of freedom and responsibility. We do not often enough reflect on how extraordinary it is that our society contains such people. We must move beyond the sentimental politics of baby boomers seeking to restore an economic and cultural reality that no longer exists and instead build up the mediating institutions that sustain our system of self-government. The rise of American populism 
is due to the breakdown of faith in our institutions and our elites. The American people are demanding a better class of leader, a better class of elites who respect them. Our politics in 2016 has been warped by the nostalgia of the boomers, but it doesn't need to stay that way. It will be our people who determine this, not our politics. America has survived incredible things. At key moments in our history, when all could be lost, when the odds were stacked against us, we have won through. The risks our founding fathers took in the course of making this great experiment in self-government are not easily forgotten. And there is a stoic heart of our country that beats strong and has answered the call time and again. America was founded on, on an, uh, not on an old world belief that we are prisoners of our destiny or our birth, but that the world that we can pass on can exceed the one we were born into. This is not a uniquely American belief, but a human one. But not all cultures acknowledge or honor it. It was here in America where this belief was uniquely understood from our inception in our creed. We are born to an equal claim to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of what lies beyond that far horizon. To deny this, to turn to the false prophets of authoritarians, is to break faith with our own humanity, rejecting what is best in ourselves. Yes, there are reasons to be scared. We are witnessing a fight over what our nation is to be. The current elite are craven and corrupt, and the people are calling out for aid. If those of us who still believe in constitutional freedom aren't the ones who answer, the authoritarians will. But it is the American people in all their forms, varied, courageous, humble, ambitious, free, who will together determine whether we move on from the wistful obsession with all that once was good and could be again to one nation after all. Be not afraid of this populist moment. The author of all things watches over us, and we are a blessed nation. No matter what comes, the American idea is too strong to be eradicated by one man or one movement. It lives in our hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, very much. Questions from the audience? Mike and I will try to recognize you. Wait, please, for the microphone so that we can get you on tape and judge your question later, as good or bad. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, it seems that this fall we're faced with a choice between a crooked, crony capitalist and a bombastic billionaire buffoon. And my question is, who do you choose? Um, uh, I... So I signed on to the against Trump cover of, of National Review. My argument against him simply amounted to the fact that I don't believe he believes in the Constitution. I understand that everyone has to make a, a decision in their own conscience about who, who they support. Uh, for my own part, I'm a registered independent, and, uh, and so uh, in, and in the state of Virginia, I have the luxury of not being in one that looks like it's going to matter. It's, it's a hard choice, and I think that what happens to me every day, and I don't know if you've experienced this, is that I look online and I see these stories and I read these things and I say, oh, he's awful, oh, he's awful, oh, he's awful. And then I turn on CNN for 15 minutes and I, and I realize, but she's worse. <laughs> and so uh, for those of you who do live in states that matter and, and have to make a decision about this, I, you know, it's very hard. Um, I think you know, for, for a lot of people, the argument that I hear mo from most of my staff is um, that the life issue and the issue of the Supreme Court is the most important issue for them. And so that's why they've had to swallow hard uh, and go out for a drink after. Um, uh, so that would be my recommendation to you. For my own part, I, I'll probably write someone in. I'm in Virginia. It doesn't, it's not close. 
Um, a question. I'm I'm a local clergy Christian Reform pastor, and you meant you talked about the mediating institutions, the church being one of them, and as as one of those institutions that people a lot of times can find meaning in life, so that they don't have to look to a big government um, to to fulfill that. But one of the difficulties the church, of course, faces, um, you know, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but a lot of Protestant churches, is the media context and coming out of popular culture, is it, it denigrates the church so often. You see that even in higher education. So that on one level, people don't want to look to the church anymore. They've been told, in fact, uh, if you go there, your children will get sodomized and um, uh, and, and people will be abused and and, and so they say, well, we don't want anything to do with the church. Um, so, th- so they're running away from some of these mediating institutions. Uh, wh- what, is, what would you say would be one of the best ways to counteract that uh, so that people, mm-hmm. again, don't fear some of these healthy mediating institutions? I think, I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest things that you could start with is, uh, under, is with the idea that the, the desperate people that live within our society today need meaning in their lives, want meaning in their lives. But I think that in a certain sense, you're going to have to go to them. You're going to have to find them and offer them something that they're not currently getting from just a welfare check or a disability check or what have you. Um, and I think that in this case, you know, one of the things that's uh, a big problem within the health policy space is that there are some people who just won't come. They just won't go to the hospital. They won't go and get treatment. Uh, and so, you know, for, for things like dental care, they're now, you know, you have to load up a bus and go to where they are to find them and, and give them the kind of care that they need. I think that our churches uh, really need our support and really need more of a, of a built-up approach that, that does that within these communities and does that good work. I don't think it's any accident that the most resistant uh, portion of American society to this message has been the Mormon church. And it's because of the close-knit communitarian ideals that they have for each other and the way that they relate to each other. I don't think that's an accident, and I think that's something that, as evangelicals, as Catholics, what, what have you, that's something that we ought to emulate more within our, our church organizations. Do you think that uh, populism will turn against our court system at some point in the near or far future? The Supreme Court right now is at the lowest uh, 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 approval rating that it's ever had. It went, it ticked back up a little bit after the Hobby Lobby decision, and then went right back down. Um, so John Roberts' project of getting uh, people in D.C. to respect the court uh, has worked, and everyone else it hasn't. <laughs> um, I I think that they're already turning against it, and I think that they are increasingly viewing the decisions of this of this current Supreme Court and other court levels as being illegitimate or questionable. There are a lot of questions about our justice system that I think have come up over the course of the past several years that have really decreased people's trust in it. What that looks like in terms of a rebellion, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say because, it, uh, you know, the, a- Andrew Jackson responded once to uh, someone who was drunkenly besmirching the court by walking out into the street and, uh, and saying that his gun or him would be in the ground in the next five seconds if he didn't drop it. So <laughs> you may see some confrontations. Thank you. Um, I'm surprised in a speech about American populism that you did not mention Bernie Sanders. Would you consider him the left analog to Trump? Uh, yes, I do. Um, and and I, th- I would consider him another authoritarian promising to fix everything. 
Um, it's, it's a different approach, but it definitely overlaps. And it, and it speaks to uh, you know, a, a generation of Americans, uh, particularly a younger generation, that is increasingly comfortable with sacrificing almost every aspect of freedom in their lives as long as sexual freedom and personal expression is kept uh, uh, in, in sort of its own little area. That, that as long as they retain what they view as that freedom, then they're happy to get rid of almost everything else for this false promise that government can come in and fix everything about their lives. The, the only difference for me is that I don't know how much staying power that has on a left that has become such a machine of Clintonian corporatist politics. And I wonder how that's going to play out. To be honest, I could see some of them being politically homeless for a while. Uh, I have a qu uh, question here. Um, you were talking about uh, the rise of Donald Trump. You know, I have an issue with the idea of what I consider forced sameness under the guise of equality. Do you have any response to that? Uh, I'm sorry, say that again? Forced, uh, forced sameness under the guise forced of equality. Uh, yes, I, I do think that that's a, a significant issue. And I think that that, you know, the... Um, I think you, you see that right now in, in the kind of uh, test case scenario of the campus. You know, one of the things that's different about the, um, uh, about the Obama era approach versus traditional approaches of previous Democratic presidents is that prior Democratic presidents would try to run the country like it was a big city, uh, but the Obama administration has tried to run the country like it's a campus. <laughs> which is much worse, <laughs> and uh, and I think that that's something that's one of the reasons why when you see these things playing out across campuses, and you're going to see a lot of it in the coming weeks as uh, every Halloween uh, outfit turns out to be problematic, and you know needs to every people they have to apologize and you know uh, flay themselves and everything like that to to make up for it. The uh, that kind of forced sameness that is is part of this rise of illiberalism on the left, which is seeking to squash any speech that they find offensive. They have a whole new terminology for talking about it, of speech as being an act of violence or something along those lines. I think this forced sameness of, of not wanting to have uh, a federal system of states that govern themselves uh, is, is something that we're only going to see continue. Uh, I like to say that, um, uh, <laughs> I like to say that the left likes everything locally grown except for government. Uh, Benjamin, just had a question. About 25 years ago, my first career was with uh, Ross Perot's company, EDS. And at that time, I, you know, I really enjoyed working for them because it was very team-oriented. Mm -hmm. And we all worked together to come up with solutions. Um, I got married, had kids, was out of the workforce for about 15 years, just went back. And the biggest change I've noticed is that I, this individualism that you have talked about has creeped into the workforce. And there isn't that sense of team anymore. And I was wondering if you could speak to that and, and you know, kind of explain that, that how that came about. And, and it's just, I, I find it very um, frustrating. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a lot of reasons that that happened and, and we could have a whole other conversation about that. But w the one point that I would just make is I, I think we, we changed, um, we reoriented a lot of, of, our, uh, of our institutions, but also our companies and, and our corporate mindsets uh, around this idea of individual uh, actualization and the, the need for individuals to feel 
uh, that they're cultivated, cared for, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that the problem that that had was, it, it, in a sense, it removed levels of responsibility away from individuals. It turned it more into this uh, thing where um, uh, corporate cultures today have a lot of the, those problems. And frankly, a lot of the books that are out there are trying to work through them and get around them. This is particularly, sadly, a, a problem among millennial workers. Uh, and I say that not just as someone who, who is one, I'm an older millennial, but as, as a media entrepreneur, I have employed many, uh, and uh, and the good ones are hard to find. Uh, we call them unicorns, and they hard work hard, and they don't need constant cultivation, and they don't need constant feedback, and you can trust them to be diligent. <laughs> and the bad ones, uh, and frankly, in my experience, I find that the, the boys are worse for some reason. Uh, uh, that the bad ones need constant affirmation and feedback, and you know, if they don't get it, then they get really, you know, emotional about it and they feel like they're not being appreciated. They feel like, you know, it's, and uh, having to deal with that myself as an entrepreneur, I, I can say it's a real problem and it's one we're going to continue to have. The, the one good thing is the, the unicorns will shine. The ones who are really good because they're good among a, a cohort that has these problems, they'll really shine and rise. Ben, you made a very good case for the, uh, the, uh, uh, insurrectionist, I guess you could say, populist uh, tendencies of Donald Trump. And uh, were it not for the fact that Donald Trump was such an imperfect candidate, uh, he, might have, he might win, but it seems that he probably won't. Mm. So in the event of him not winning, uh, what, what do you see for the future of the country in terms of what, what still needs, what, if there's still a vacuum that, that exists where Populism needs to. So imagine what would have happened if David Cameron didn't step down after Brexit. And that's what you're going to see. Because Washington has already decided, especially the leaders in, in the Senate and the House, that it will be amazing to you how much this didn't happen. We're just going to pretend this didn't happen. We're not going to take any lessons from it. We're going to have the same people roll out. Reince Priebus can be a fall guy. And you know we'll be rolling out all the same agenda, the same approach, the same everything. Uh, and they'll do that because mo most of them will survive. You know, they, they're not currently looking like they're going to have some kind of, of, of dramatic loss. I think that that's a huge error, uh, especially because you're going to go into a period where you immediately start having political primaries and other fights that are going to happen. Um, and I think that the, you know, I've been sounding this message for a while now that this populist surge is happening you can either try to direct it in a positive direction toward more freedom for people, toward getting government out of their lives, having, you know, and, and toward freeing them to do and pursue what they want to in their lives, or it's going to revert to, well, I can't trust this system to work at all, so we need more authoritarian centralized power in order to fix everything. And I think that the problem really is that you know, this is the, the coalition that has supported free markets and freedom for people is, is very much broken at this uh, stage, is very confused about what's going to come next, uh, unsure of, of what to do. Uh, they're very skittish. And I think that actually what they need to be is much bolder and, and much stronger in forming a case to take to the American people that can say, we understand you, we hear you, you we respect you, and we're going to adjust our agenda to prioritize the things that are most important to you as opposed to lobbyists in D.C. So... That, that's the lesson I think needs to be taken, broadly speaking, and I don't see it happening right now. The uh, uh, President uh, Jackson famously hated the Bank of the United States. 
and we went about 100 years without a central bank till the Fed. Okay, uh, one of the institutions we may or may not trust these days, and, and populists or populism would have a perspective on this, but you haven't mentioned is the uh, Federal Reserve and its uh, abilities or inabilities mm -hmm. to do its various tasks. I'd like to hear you comment on that, please, on the mm -hmm. Fed. Uh, I think that there, there is no institution less transparent, really, if, if you think about it, just in terms of levels of importance. And I think that the, the simple fact is that uh, we have one of the reasons that I think people are anxious about the current economy is that they simply don't have faith in our leaders. And I would include the Fed in that. They, they do not trust that this economy is headed in the right direction. And I think that it's really, I think they're right to feel that way. Um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is I don't see the current motivation on the part of our political leaders to do anything to change that, to do anything to look at the Fed and to say, maybe we shouldn't just assume that this is something that you can continue to just turn that knob and pretend that the economy isn't really the way it is for the benefit of Wall Street and for others. And so that, to me, I look at the Fed as another institution that has, uh, you know, had it was trusted in, in the 90s and then lost its trust over, and, and really hasn't regained it. And I think that that's something that's only going to continue to be a problem as long as politicians are unwilling to consider the kind of dramatic change that I think most Americans want to see within our government. Yeah, I um, at the last debate, I think we all saw some um, lows, but there was one really telling moment that, um, that just reinforced my reason for voting for Mr. Trump well. He may not have a profound understanding of the Constitution. He does understand the importance of the Supreme Court and has some level of understanding that our laws are fixed, uniform, and universal. And I saw in Hillary's answer a profound disrespect and like, no understanding of what the Supreme Court is there to do in terms of the law, which scares the heck out of me. Um, so I am proudly... And, Thankfully, voting for Mr. Trump as I saw his Supreme Court list. But could you comment on that? So uh, the Obama administration, thank you, thank you for, for sharing that. The Obama administration has uh, vindicated a, an approach to executive governance that I think is very scary. Uh, and basically what they've done is realize this. They've realized that uh, rather than go through the normal process, rather than go through regular order, rather than having legis a legislative business uh, approach, uh, uh, back and forth between the Congress and the executive, what they will do is do things by fiat. They'll change a rule, they'll, uh, they'll adopt a new policy, they'll reinterpret something, uh, and they'll just announce it. And what the Congress is then faced with is a situation where all they can really do is sue, which means that this is going to go back and forth between appellate and et cetera, all the way up to the Supreme Court, where everything ends up there, okay? And they have to make some rule by fiat on a, an issue that they may not even understand as justices. Uh, but the Obama administration's approach has been vindicated because basically their argument is, well, this has been hap we've been doing this now for four years or five years because that's how long it's taken to work through the court process. We can't really untangle it now, and the court doesn't really want to mess things up, you know, and, and the Roberts Court in particular doesn't feel uh, the need to, you know, pay attention to the Constitution as opposed to executive rulemaking. L let, me, let me just throw one scenario to you as, as, a, as a potential possibility. It is in the text of the, of the platform that Hillary Clinton is running on that she is in favor of removing the Hyde Amendment, the 40-year amendment that has, that has prevented federal funding, direct federal funding for, uh, for abortions. 
imagine a year and a half from now, uh, a President Hillary Clinton, assuming you know a, a Republican House or something like that, uh, just announces or just has her. Actually, she wouldn't even do it. She would just have her Secretary of Health and Human Services announce, "We have reinterpreted a rule, and now Medicaid will reimburse." Uh, Planned Parenthood or anybody else who performs an abortion in the case of rape, incest, life, or health of the mother, any reason, uh, and uh, because all of women's health should be paid for and women should have it, you know, no different than men when it comes to this. What she, what she would be basically teeing up is a situation where the Congress would have only two options. Sue her over it, which will take years, okay, even though Hyde is very clear-cut, uh, or shut the government down. And even in that case, since Medicaid is something that's already automatically teed up, you know th- that's a situation that I think is far more realistic than people have considered. And uh, given the approach that Obama has used with this exe- with his executive actions, I don't think it's anything is out of the realm of possibility. When Bart Stupak voted for Obamacare, he was promised he was promised that none of the funds that went in there would go toward abortions, that the, that the religious liberty of, of people would be protected. And, you know, to his shock, you know, now, he, now you have a situation where the little sisters of the poor have to sue the United States government in order to exercise their religious rights. So I think this is only going to become a bigger issue in the years to come. Let's take our last question back here. Uh, with the rise of Common Core and the ignorance of the Constitution and the function of government, and the individualism that you're talking about, I had the opportunity to uh, teach a course on virtue and ethics on a college level. How would you promote the Constitution to an understanding that the average millennial and younger would be able to understand it without the interpretation of liberalism, communism, and self-absorption? We seem to have a vacuum in virtue and ethics that has reached all the way down to the youngest generation and seems to be ignored by the oldest as well. We're dealing with a culture that we think exists when in reality we're um, facing a a national crisis for the younger individual. So so I went and I saw, uh, I I was fortunate enough to see uh, uh, Hamilton on Broadway. And they sell uh, standing room only seats. So you have to stand for the entire performance in the back of the hall. And um, when I saw it, it was a group of very young girls. They had to be either high school seniors or, or college freshmen, uh, just in tank tops, you know, standing in the back. And at the end of the musical, while I was walking up to go out, uh, they were weeping openly there. And one of the girls turned to the other one and she said, can you believe that really happened? So the thing I would give you is this. Start with things that have already ingrained themselves in the millennial mindset. Start with that. Start, start with something recognizable. In this case, a musical that has been streamed millions upon millions of times and that you know, uh, my little nieces sing from memory. Um, and that, I think, can be a starting point for relating them to, well, what did they actually accomplish? What did they do? What were the arguments? What were the battles? Personalizing it, making it a story that is about people first and not just ideas is I think the key thing because then those people become relatable they become not just dry letters on the page but they become real people with relationships and emotions uh, with courage and with cowardice with humility and with bravery I think that's the way to approach teaching these principles of the constitution start with the people then talk about what they believed thank you so much thank you so much 
mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at www.acton.org.